fathers, brothers and sisters, friends. It is a happiness for me to be with you today to speak about the Orthodox Catholic Dialogue. Are we making any progress? Are we any closer to a solution? I speak to you as a member of the Joint International Commission for Theological Dialogue between the Orthodox Church and the Roman Catholic Church. This commission began its work in 1980, but I've only been part of it since 2006. I have attended four plenary sessions at Belgrade in 2006, at Ravenna in 2007, at Paphos in Cyprus 2009, and then last year at Vienna. We meet in agreeable and interesting places. <laughs> Let me share with you two memories first of Ravenna and then of Paphos. At Ravenna, there were police everywhere, large numbers of them outside the entrance to the hotel where we were staying, other police outside the hall where we met, police along the road between the hotel and the hall. What was the reason for all these police? I didn't discover. No incident happened that demanded their presence. Were they there to protect the Orthodox from the people of Ravenna, or were they there to protect the people of Ravenna from the Orthodox? <laughs> The next year at Paphos, things were different. There was only one police officer outside our hotel, but there was a reason why he needed to be there. Because on the first morning, there was a demonstration outside the hotel of members of zealot groups who had come from Athens. I don't think they had much support from the people of Cyprus. So there was a group waving placards saying, Orthodoxy or death, we will never submit. The Pope is Antichrist. They were allowed simply to stand there and they were not admitted to the hotel, nothing further happened, and eventually they just went away. So I wondered today, would there be members of the police surrounding the buildings here? Would there be crowds with placards? But I was disappointed. <laughs> Now, I mention that incident in Paphos because it is important for us to remember that dialogue between separated Christians is sometimes misunderstood. 
And there are certainly uh, many members of the Orthodox Church who are still very reserved about uh, closer relations with the Catholic Church. I don't think there is the same kind of reservation on the Catholic side. Even if we do not agree with those Orthodox who protest against the dialogue, we must take them seriously because they represent a substantial number of our people and they are acting with sincerity. We must try to overcome their unhappiness. On the last occasion, when Catholics and Orthodox met together at the highest level at the Council of Ferrara, Florence in 1438-39. The two sides occupied some ten months debating the procession of the Holy Spirit and the addition of the Filioque to the Creed. They devoted about four months to the subject of purgatory and the blessedness of the saints. But on the question of the papal primacy, they spent no more than ten days towards the very end of the council, when everybody was in a hurry to get home. Ten months for the filioque, ten days for the papal claims. Such was the order of priorities in the 15th century. Our perspective in the 21st century is altogether different. In the eyes of most Orthodox and of most Catholics today, the crucial point at issue between our two churches is not the theology of the Holy Spirit, but the position of the Bishop of Rome within the Universal Church. In the words of Cardinal Walter Casper, who was until recently the chairman on the Catholic side in our dialogue, for non-Catholic Christians, the papal ministry is the major hindrance on the path towards unity. The main theological problem we now face, he says, is our shared and different understanding of communio, kinonia. His counterpart, the Orthodox co-chairman of the Joint International Commission, Metropolitan John Ziziulas of Pergamon, is in full agreement here. Historically, he says, the question of papal authority and primacy has been the main cause for the gradual estrangement between the East and the West. The question of primacy undoubtedly lies at the very heart of Roman Catholic Orthodox relations. 
The ecumenical patriarch Bartholomew is of the same opinion. We have different ecclesiologies, he says, and the place of the Bishop of Rome in the Universal Church of Christ constitutes the principal obstacle. Now when the dialogue started in 1980 on the island of Patmos in the monastery of St. John, of which I am a member, it was decided not to start with the issues that in past history have led to conflict. It was feared that if that was done, the two sides would merely repeat well-known arguments from the past. Um, the dialogue wanted to make a fresh start. As Pope John Paul II said in his encyclical, Ut Unum Sint of 1995, we must be open to a new situation. So, to begin with, we discussed other issues, and it was only at Ravenna in 2007 that we began to approach the crucial issue of papal primacy. We have not spoken very much about papal infallibility. Now at Ravenna in the joint statement we issued three levels of primacy in the church were discussed. And I quote, the conciliar dimension of the church is to be found at the three levels of ecclesial communion, the local, the regional, and the universal. At the local level, entrusted to the bishop, at the regional level of a group of local churches with their bishops who recognize who is the first among themselves, and at the universal level, where those who are first in the various regions, together with all the bishops, cooperate in that which concerns the totality of the church. At this level also, the protos must recognize who is the first among themselves. There then you have a threefold distinction, local, regional, and universal. The Pontifical Council for Promoting Christian Unity, in a working document issued in 2002, makes the same point somewhat more concisely. The Bishop of Rome acts simultaneously at, at once as Bishop of a local diocese, as Patriarch of the Western or Latin Church, and as the Universal Minister of Unity. Now, this threefold distinction 
local, regional, universal, has important implications both for Catholics and for Orthodox. First, for the Catholics. There has been a tendency in the past for the Catholic theologians to neglect the level of regional primacy, the middle level, the second of the three levels. Very many Catholics would work simply with a twofold scheme the episcopate and the pope. If we look at the documents of the Anglican Roman Catholic International Commission, ARCHIC, during 1976 to 81, we find virtually nothing is said about regional primacy. It's only the local authority of the diocesan bishop and the pope as universal pontiff. And that's also the same with the 1995 encyclical of Pope John Paul II that I mentioned, Ut Unum Sint. There are very many things there which we Orthodox find encouraging, but we note that the level of regional primacy is almost entirely neglected. Also, we Orthodox are a little disquieted that the Synod of Bishops is not given greater importance. It seems to be denied a genuine canonical authority. And, of course, we Orthodox were puzzled and disturbed when, in 2006, the Pope stopped using his traditional title of Patriarch of the West. All of this to us seemed to fit together and to suggest a certain neglect of the middle level of primacy, the level of regional primacy. Now, let's look at the writings during the 1960s of our present Pope Benedict XVI, writing as Professor Joseph Ratzinger, at that time he insisted upon the distinction between the regional or patriarchal level of primacy and the universal primacy. He spoke specifically of the need to build up patriarchal spaces. We Orthodox fervently hope that he is still of the same opinion. If at this juncture he were to say this plainly and emphatically, it would greatly assist our Orthodox Catholic dialogue. Now, during the 
past millennium, there has been little or no practical reason in the Latin West to differentiate between the patriarchal jurisdiction of the Bishop of Rome and his position as universal primate. For the Christian East, however, this distinction is vital. We Orthodox believe that the Pope possesses in the Latin West a direct power of jurisdiction that he does not possess in the Christian East. And I know that many Eastern Catholics agree with us here. For us Orthodox, the universal primacy of the Pope is to be regarded as the top of a pyramid underneath which there is the lower level of the regional primacy of the patriarchates and the autocephalous churches. Only when the universal primacy of the Pope is woven into the fabric of these regional primacies can its true character be properly appreciated. If regarded in isolation, Rome's universal primacy becomes distorted. That is why we Orthodox are disturbed by the omission of the title Patriarch of the West. That is why we Orthodox welcome the consistent adoption in the Ravenna Statement of a structure that is triadic, not twofold. This threefold distinction, local, regional, universal, has implications also for the Orthodox. Because we Orthodox in the past have tended to neglect or even totally to deny the universal primacy of the Pope. There has been a tendency for Orthodox to think of the Pope simply as the senior among the regional primates, the first among the patriarchs, as the elder brother and nothing more. This is the standpoint, for example, of the answer of the Great Church of Constantinople in 1895, sent in response to the encyclical Praeclara Gratulationis of Pope Leo XIII. The Orthodox rite here, having recourse to the Fathers and the Ecumenical Councils of the Church of the first nine centuries, we are fully persuaded that the Bishop of Rome was never considered as the supreme authority and infallible head of the Church, and that every bishop 
is head and president of his own particular church, subject only to the synodical ordinances and decisions of the church, universal, as being alone infallible, the Bishop of Rome being in no wise accepted from this, as church history shows. Our Lord Jesus Christ alone is eternal prince and immortal head of the church. Now that statement is concerned more with infallibility than with the Pope's primacy of universal jurisdiction. But its intention is obviously to exclude the latter as well as the former. And there are many Orthodox who would continue to agree with that answer of 1895 from the Church of Constantinople. So there you have an example of the way in which the third level can be altogether denied. This brings out the importance of the Ravenna statement for us Orthodox. In the Ravenna statement it is stated unambiguously the fact of primacy at the universal level is accepted by both East and West. And that statement was endorsed by all the delegates, the Orthodox as well as the Catholics. The Orthodox representation was not absolutely complete because the Church of Russia was not present at the Ravenna meeting. It has been present at subsequent meetings in Vienna, for example. The absence of the Church of Russia, however, was not due to any theological reason concerning relations with the Catholics. It was because of Orthodox difficulties in Estonia. Now, this statement, stressing the existence of universal primacy, is the first time, at any rate in recent history, that the Orthodox Church at a high official level has affirmed in principle the universal primacy of the Bishop of Rome. The viewpoint of those Orthodox who altogether deny the existence of the third level of ecclesial authority is in this way directly repudiated. But the question then arises, what? kind of universal primacy is meant. How is it to be interpreted? Ravenna did not offer an answer. In its agreed statement, the meeting at Ravenna merely said that the fact of primacy at the universal level is accepted, but the delegates at once went on to admit there are differences of interpretation with regard to the manner 
in which it is to be exercised and also with regard to its scriptural and theological foundations. And the delegates at Ravenna said, crucial to this whole question is what happened historically in the first millennium when Orthodox and Catholics were in full communion. After all, if for the first ten centuries we were in full communion, that means that we Orthodox cannot offer less to Rome than we did in those ten centuries. But at the same time, Rome does not have the right to ask from us Orthodox more than was accepted in those ten centuries. So the first millennium is taken as the criterion for discovering what is meant by universal primacy. However, the appeal to history is not easy. We have different ways of interpreting the historical evidence. And also, even though East and West were in full communion during the first millennium, with certain limited exceptions, yet already during those first thousand years, there were in the two halves of Christendom divergent manners of interpreting the position of the papacy. Let me illustrate that by what happened in 449 to 451. Pope Leo the Great whose memory we celebrated, I think, yesterday, at any rate in the Orthodox Church, wrote his famous tome concerning the theology of the person of Christ. And it seems that having written his tome, the Pope thought that this was sufficient to settle the disputes that were then in progress. He does not seem to have thought it necessary for the East to summon an ecumenical council. It would be enough, it seems to have been in his mind, for the East simply to accept his tone. So Leo certainly felt that by pronouncing on the dispute in question, he had provided a solution, a definitive solution. The emperor and the eastern bishops saw it differently, and an ecumenical council was summoned. Pope Leo's tome was read at the council, and it was received with acclamation. The bishop shouted aloud, Peter has spoken through Leo. Words that are often quoted, 
But we should remember they didn't form part of a formal definition of doctrine. They were simply an acclamation. However, there were some Eastern bishops who were unhappy about particular passages in the Pope's document. And they were not told, the Pope has spoken, the matter is settled. A different approach was used. The Council of Chalcedon set up a committee and the bishops who had reservations met with a number of other bishops, a small number on each side, and uh, the specific passages in the tome to which objection was made were compared with the writings of Cyril of Alexandria, who was a great authority for the Eastern bishops. And the tome was then adopted on the grounds that what Leo was saying was in full agreement with what Cyril had said 30 years earlier. So there we see that the Eastern bishops did not accept the tome simply because it was a statement from the Bishop of Rome. They accepted the tome because it agreed with the tradition that they already held, because Leo agreed with the father whom they held in special reverence, Cyril of Alexandria. Now at that time there was no breach of communion between East and West. These differences of opinion were not particularly emphasized. But it's clear therefore that even in the period of full communion there coexisted different approaches in East and West towards the position of the Bishop of Rome. So the first millennium is a time of unity, but it is a time also of diversity. And if we are going to look at the historical evidence, one of the special questions we have to ask is, how far can this diversity be carried without impairing Eucharistic communion? So that was where Ravenna left us. It didn't define exactly the content of papal primacy, but it affirmed its basic existence. However, the statement of Ravenna offers us a precious guideline. It appeals to the 34th Apostolic Canon. Now, I don't think the apostolic canons, which are 4th century in date, are particularly well known in the Western canonical tradition. But for the Christian East, the apostolic canons have always been held in very high regard. And especially the 34th apostolic canon, which is seen as the touchstone for primacy. I'm sure that my friend Metropolitan Nicholas here knows the 34th Apostolic Canon by heart and I'm sure he recites it to himself before he goes to sleep each night. <laughs> now, 
The canon says, the bishops of each province must recognize the one who is first, protos is the Greek word, the one who is first among them, and consider him to be their head. And they must not do anything important without his consent. But the first, the protos, cannot do anything without the consent of all. And the canon ends by referring to the doctrine of the Holy Trinity. It doesn't draw out the point, but the point might be made that, yes, within the Trinity the Father is first, but the Son and the Spirit are equal to him. Now, this apostolic canon is referring to regional primacy, not universal primacy. But the Ravenna statement suggests, without affirming this in an entirely explicit manner, that the canon may likewise be applied to universal primacy, level three of the three levels that I distinguished. Now, yes, what does that imply? The 34th Apostolic Canon suggests a relation, a mutual relation, between the one who is first and the other bishops. The Protos, the head, the first, is not to do anything without consulting the others, but the others are not to do anything without consulting him. So the pattern there is mutuality, reciprocal concord, co-responsibility, interdependence. So if we apply this to papal primacy, it means that the members of the Episcopal College and equally the patriarchs of the East cannot act without their head, the Pope. But equally, the Pope cannot act without the members of the Episcopal College and the Eastern patriarchs. Now, I wonder how far such an understanding of papal primacy can be reconciled with the decrees of the First Vatican Council or, for that matter, of its successor, Vatican II. In the dogmatic constitution of the Church, Lumen Gentium, adopted at Vatican II, it is clearly said that the College of Bishops cannot act without its head, the Pope, whereas the Pope can very well act without the College. Section 22. In the words of the Nota Explicativa Previa, Section 4, as Supreme Pastor of the Church, the sovereign pontiff can always exercise his authority as he chooses. 
while the College of Bishops acts only at intervals and with the consent of its head. Now that doesn't seem to correspond with the kind of reciprocal relationship that the Ravenna Statement envisages when it invokes Apostolic Canon 34. If it proves possible to reinterpret the authority of the Pope in the perspective of this canon, here is certainly an understanding of papal primacy that may well prove acceptable to the Orthodox Church. For this reason, I regard the Ravenna Statement as a document full of hope. But I would apply to it the words of Winston Churchill during the Second World War. When uh, Britain won its first victory over Germany, the Battle of Britain, when the German Air Force failed to gain control of the airspace above Britain, and that indeed prevented Germany from invading Britain. Churchill said of this, it is not the end, it is not even the beginning of the end, but perhaps it is the end of the beginning. So perhaps Ravenna is not the end, nor even the beginning of the end, but I hope it represents the end of the beginning. I do think it constitutes an exciting breakthrough that the Orthodox have recognized the principle of universal primacy. Now we've got to get down to the much more difficult question, perhaps, of looking at the details. And that is what we are now doing since Ravenna. We are trying to draw up a joint statement, reviewing the historical evidence, trying to achieve a shared view of history. We haven't yet succeeded entirely. We've drawn up a draft document. I think this will be revised this year and probably next year it will come back to a plenary session for the two sides to try and assess how far we really do agree in our view of the evidence in the first millennium. So We've still got plenty of work to do. Please pray for the continued success of our discussions. I truly believe that if we Orthodox and Catholics can make genuine progress on the way we understand primacy, then most of the other issues that arise between us could be solved. Let me, in conclusion, suggest why dialogue is important. As I mentioned, some Orthodox are not happy about the idea of dialogue. 
Let me tell you why I am in favour of it. Half a century ago, a highly instructive book was written on the Christian understanding of the human person. Still worth reading, too much neglected. A work by the Scottish philosopher John McMurray, entitled Persons in Relation. McMurray's theme was this, personhood is relational. As persons, we are what we are only in relation to other persons. No one, isolated, cut off from others, turned inward, is truly a person according to the image and likeness of God. There was a saying among the early Christians, Unus Christianus, nullus Christianus. One Christian, isolated, cut off, is no true Christian. We could extend that by saying, una persona, nulla persona. One person, isolated, cut off, is not a true person. As McMurray says, the self exists only in dynamic relation with the other. The self is constituted by its relation to the other. It has its being in the relationship. And McMurray develops this. There is no true person, he says, unless there are at least two persons in communion with one another. To be human is to be dialogic. And so McMurray concludes, I need you in order to be myself. I might add in passing here that the very word for person in the Greek language indicates the relational character of personhood. The word for person in Greek is prosopon and that means face, countenance. I am not truly a person unless I face other persons, unless I look at them, unless I look into their eyes and let them look into mine. Now, we should apply all this not only to individual persons, but to church communities. Isolated, cut off from other Christian communities, no ecclesial group is truly fulfilling its vocation in Christ. Each Christian community should be willing to say to the others, we need you in order to be ourselves. Yes, indeed, on the Catholic side, 
you say that the one true church subsists in the Roman Catholic Church. And we on the Orthodox side make a similar claim. We say the Orthodox Church is the one true Church of Christ. But without contradicting these theological claims, we have to admit that because of our separation, we are on both sides grievously diminished. We need each other in order to be ourselves. And that, to me, constitutes the compelling reason to engage in dialogue. Cardinal Sunans sums up the matter with great simplicity. He says, in order to unite, we must first love one another. In order to love one another, we must first get to know one another. That is why we need theological dialogue, in order to get to know one another, in order to listen to one another. But of course, dialogue at the highest level is not enough. We need to bring the dialogue to the local level to involve parishes, dioceses, theological schools, so that it is not simply a matter for experts discussing things in isolation, but it is something that is understood and appreciated by the whole Christian people on each side. And this is perhaps going to take some time. I recall the words of a great Orthodox ecumenist during the second half of the 20th century, Archpriest George Florovsky. He said, the greatest ecumenical virtue is patience. But I would add an impatient patience, a patient impatience. Thank you.